Please turn to 1 Timothy. Today I'm going to talk about death and the day of judgment. Okay. 2 Timothy 1, verse 12, and 2 Timothy 4, verses 6 to 8. Paul speaking to Timothy. And of this gospel I was appointed a herald and an apostle and a teacher. That is why I am suffering as I am. Yet this is no cause for shame, because I know whom I have believed. And I am convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him until that day. 2 Timothy 4.6 For I am already being poured out like a drink offering, and the time for my departure is near. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, not only to me, but also to all who have longed for his appearing. There was a famous preacher by the name of D.L. Moody. He was an American, and he he lived in the mid-1800s, where if you were a famous preacher, you weren't just famous in Christian circles, you were famous worldwide, and everybody knew him. In fact, he even came to Edinburgh. He came to England, he came to Scotland, and he preached in 1873 on Arthur's seat to a crowd of 10,000 people four times. And many, many people became Christians. And as his ministry reached its maturity and he began to reach old age, the word began to get around, well, D.L. Moody, he's looking a little unwell. I wonder how much longer he's going to be with us. And so rather than ducking that issue, he went public with this statement He said, Someday you will read in the papers D.L. Moody of East Northfield is dead. Don't you believe a word of it? At that moment I shall be more alive than I am now. I shall have gone up higher, that is all, out of this old clay tenement into a house that is immortal, a body that death cannot touch, that sin cannot taint, a body fashioned likened unto his glorious body. I was born of the flesh in 1837, I was born of the Spirit in 1856. That which is born of the flesh may die. That which is born of the Spirit will live forever. He was a man who, in the face of death, wasn't running away from it, but he was running towards it. And he was saying, I'm rather looking forward to it. I'm looking forward to what awaits me. That's the Christian view of death. There's another preacher by the name of John Wesley. His brother Charles wrote many of our hymns, but but John Wesley, he founded what we would know as the Methodist movement, and uh, he died age 88, and that was in 1791. And as he lay dying, his friends gathered around him, and Wesley grasped their hands and said repeatedly, farewell, farewell, farewell. At the end, summoning all his remaining strength, he cried out, the best of all, God is with us. Lifting his arms, he raised his feeble voice again, repeating the words, the best of all is, God is with us. He was a man, in the face of imminent death, he was more aware of the nearness of God and the presence of God than he was aware of pain, than he was aware of people around him. That's the mature Christian experience of death. And I want to bring you into that experience today. There's a verse in Hebrews 2 where it says that Jesus came to deliver those who all their lives had lived under the fear of death. And there's a fear of death that grips our culture. We don't even like to talk about it anymore. 
Because people are fearful of it. And Paul said it this way in this verse we read today. He says, I'm suffering as I am, yet this is no cause for shame. Because I know whom I have believed. And I am convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him until that day. He says, I'm not ashamed. You could put it another way. He says, I'm not embarrassed. Many people were embarrassed about the Apostle Paul. I guess his family were thoroughly ashamed of him. He was a guy who had a promising future in the Jewish religion. He was the top of the top. He, he was the teacher of teachers. And he gave it all up so that he could be a Jesus person. And so he could go around the world telling people that his Jewish religion meant less to him than Jesus Christ to him. And he says, I know whom I've believed. Paul endured beatings and imprisonments and riots. There's times when he said he was sleep deprived, times when he was hungry and cold, times when he lived through obscurity and sorrow and disappointment, times when he was misrepresented. He said, he said five times I got flogged by given a Roman flogging. He says, once I was stoned, three times I was shipwrecked. He said, I spent a day and a night abandoned in the open sea. But he says this, I'm not ashamed. I'm not embarrassed about it. He says, because I know whom I've believed. I know Jesus. I know him. And do you get that? I love this personal thing. If you, if you don't know Jesus here today, he doesn't say, I know what I've believed. He doesn't say, well, I've got my Bible and the Bible just tells me so that it's going to be fine. He says, no, he says, I know who. I know who. Do you know we live in a, a world where there's just a, a total breakdown of trust? If you're struggling to know who to vote for and all those things, it's because of this. You don't quite know who you trust more. Well, here's one that Paul could trust entirely. Jesus. And he says, I know whom I believe, so I can face death without certainty. And he talks about death with this unusual word in Chapter 4, verse 6. And whilst the Bible talks about, it has these three main mantras of the New Testament. It says, Christ died for our sin, Christ rose from the grave, and Christ will come again. That is to say that one day he will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead. And Christians, we look forward to that day. Paul's aware of the fact that, actually, while we're waiting for that to happen, Christian after Christian, we die. We die. Some get persecuted, some die natural deaths, but many, many die. And so he talks about his own death very personally. He doesn't run from that issue. And he uses this word, departure. He makes it sound like he's waiting for a plane. Isn't that great? He says, I'm already being poured out like a drink offering, and the time for my departure is near. What's he saying? He's saying, I'm ready. Isn't that an exciting way to approach your death? I'm ready. Timothy, I've got a few things to say to you because my time to leave is coming soon. How different to our culture, which kind of says, eat, drink, and be merry because tomorrow we die. Let's not think about tomorrow. Let's enjoy today. You go to a funeral of somebody who's not a Christian, and and usually, well, it's a celebration of their life because we don't know what lies ahead, but hey, let's talk about the positives from their life before. We don't like even using the word death. Or should I say, popping our clogs, pushing up daisies, biting the dust, giving up the ghost, going to a better place, kicking the bucket, passing away. 
We'd much rather talk about death in these softer terms. But Paul faces it head on. He faces it with a clear mind. Do you know one of the best things you can do about your death, which one day will come, is this, to face it with a clear mind and with a clear conscience. Paul was able to give instructions to Timothy, say, do this, do that, don't do that. I'm going soon. A guy called PJ Smythe, he said, there's three gifts that you can give to your loved ones when you die, very practical things. He said, write them letters so that when you're gone, you can comfort them and tell them what you really thought of them. Hopefully the nice stuff. (laughs) He said, here's the second thing you can do. Write a will so that those who are closest to you aren't left wondering what they're meant to do with your property. If you're thinking, well, I don't really have anything, well, it's just a very simple thing. You can do it online just for a few pounds, and it just solves a whole load of heartache later on. The third thing he says is this, plan your funeral. So this is a really happy message this morning, isn't it? (laughs) Plan your funeral. Because if you're a Christian, it's a time of great hope. It's a time of where, where personally, this is your greatest moment, as Paul says, where you're going to get promoted to glory. And you want that occasion to communicate that accurately. Therefore, write some thoughts down. This is what I'd like to happen. This is what I'd like some of the songs I'd like to be sung. This is what I'd like to be said. Have something to be read out to comfort people in their grief. Anyway, so Paul uses a euphemism here. And he talks about death as his departure. The Greek word is analusis. And this word has the sense of loosening, okay? So uh, common other uses in that culture would talk about an ox being loosened from its yoke when it had finished pulling a cart. It would be used to talk about a soldier pulling up the tent pegs from his tent so he could go on a journey. It would be used to talk about untying a ship from the dock to let it sail away. It would be used to talk about unchaining a prisoner, freeing him from confinement and suffering. It would be used to talk about problem solving. So when a difficult matter was finally resolved, it was said to have been loosened. And that's all packed into this word that Paul's using, my departure is near. It's this loosening, it's this untying, this unchaining, this unpegging, so that we can go. And on one hand, the Bible calls death the last enemy, But for the believer, death is also a deliverer, casting off the burdens of a hostile world and ushering us into the world for which we were created. And the moment of death isn't lost on God. It says in Psalm 116, precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. Because we all transition to something far better. The Apostle Paul said to die is gain and to go with Christ is is better by far. In fact, in, in one parable that Jesus told, if we understand the image he's using, it's a parable of the rich man and Lazarus. And it says, when Lazarus, who was this poor man, died and went to be with God, Jesus said, angels went and collected him and took him into the presence of God. Isn't that an exciting thought? That your moment of death, there will be an angel taxi waiting for you, taking you to be directly to the presence of God. Now, if death is a departure, if that's the word being used here, then also it must be, therefore, an arrival. And an unfortunately named theologian by the name of Randy Alcorn used this image to describe death. You could put the picture up, guys, of a a ship. He says, I'm standing on the seashore. 
A ship at my side spreads her white sails to the morning breeze and starts for the blue ocean. She's an object of beauty and strength, and I stand and watch her until at length she hangs like a speck of white cloud, just where the sea and the sky come down to mingle with each other. And then I hear someone at my side saying, There, she's gone. Gone where? Gone from my sight, that is all. She is just as large in mast and hull and spar as she was when she left my side, and just as able to bear her load of living freight to the place of destination. Her diminished size is in me, not in her. And just at the moment when someone at my side says, There, she is gone, there are other eyes watching her coming, and there are other voices ready to take up the glad shout, Here she comes, and that for the Christian is dying. And as C.S. Lewis says, when we reach heaven's shores, as he says in the last battle, what does it look like? He says, well, the further up and the further in you go, the bigger everything gets. The inside is larger than the outside. This is to be a glorious thing for the Christian. Death isn't just a candle in the wind that burned out. It's the pilot light for the ever-growing flame of eternal life. So what is it that Paul's looking forward to? He's, He's certainly looking forward to being with Jesus, but more than that, I think he's, he's looking forward to physically being present in body with Jesus. And there's the promise that Paul talks about a lot. And we're going to look at a couple of other scriptures for this. Of a new body that you will receive. You see, the idea of our spirit departing and going being with God, that, that, that might sound nice as an idea. That might sound comforting. But let's face it, we're physical people, aren't we? We're not just spirit. You know, when I got up on the stage this morning, you didn't just sense my presence. You saw me. You said, it's Dan, it's the guy with the shirt and the, the long neck and all, however you describe me, I don't know. The annoying voice or something. And uh, You see, we know each other, not just as senses or spirits, we know each other by look and touch and taste and smell. And, and all of those things comprise our humanity. Our, our humanity isn't something inside us. Our humanity is everything about us. And so the idea that, well, you know what, yeah, I'm just some body, but the real me is a spirit, you think, well, it doesn't quite fly with me somehow. We love our body. We, we, <laughs> I love my body. We, we, <laughs> we, we love... We, we, Our humanness is to be physical, body, mind, and spirit. And so Paul has this dichotomy he's feeling in 2 Corinthians 5. He says in verse 1, For we know that if the earthly tent we live in is destroyed, we have a building from God, an eternal house in heaven, not built by human hands. He's talking about the human body in that verse. He's talking about our body being like a tent. He said, this is what life on earth looks like. It's us in a tent. Do you like camping? What do you like most about camping? Coming home and being at home afterwards. (laughs) Isn't that right? You look forward to saying, I've got a bad back now, it's freezing, Scotland's rubbish for camping all times of year, I just want to be home. And if you were to offer somebody, you know what, 
You could have a top-of-the-range tent to live in for the rest of your life. Or you could have a mansion. A brick-built mansion that's centrally heated and got everything. You'd think, oh, it's a tough choice. <laughs> no, you'd go for the brick. You think it's permanent. I'm going to look after my future. I want the permanent thing. So Paul says, there's a body that is to come, a permanent dwelling, which is our heavenly dwelling. He's talking about our body. It's called the resurrection body. Now, he's not saying, rubbish the tent, don't look after the tent. You must look after your body. It means just like a tent, you put it away every year and you, you make sure you waterproof it and you, you, you don't just screw it up in a heap and let it go moldy. Well, some of you do. But you're meant to look after your human body. Because if you do, it will hopefully last you many years. But when your human body begins to decay, when illness begins to lessen its abilities, when injury prevents it from operating as it should, when things like having children stretch it out of all proportion, those things we're to understand that this tent is a temporary tent, but there is a dwelling to come, a body that is to come that is free from all of that and is perfect in every way. Let me ask you, if there's things that you're struggling with, I mean, even things like healing that we were praying for today, love praying for healing, or if you go to the doctor to get something fixed, isn't that great when you get something fixed and you think, yeah, I feel like a new man or a new woman? And, but at best, it's a pit stop. It's somebody changing your tires in order to get you on for the next leg of the journey. But what you need is a perfect resurrection body. And that is what Paul is looking forward to. That's what's promised to him. And that's what the Bible promises to you and me. Now, the question is, what does that look like? Well, in the words of Blue Peter, we can say, here's one that we made earlier. Because Jesus had a resurrection body. Jesus, when he rose from the grave, he came in resurrection power and he ascended. And now there's one at the right hand of God. And he has a body that will never decay or die. And Philippians 3 says this. It says, he will transform our lowly bodies so they will be like his glorious body. So let's get some features of Jesus' resurrection body. It would never die again. Here's another thing. He was totally recognizable as Jesus when he wanted to be. So when he spoke, he spoke with the voice of Jesus. When he said Mary, she understood who he was. He was recognizable. Jesus could still eat. He had breakfast with his disciples after his resurrection. He could be touched and embraced. All of those things are something we long for, even with advances of technology. It's just not the same to Skype somebody, is it, as to chat with them in the room in person and to touch them and kiss them and speak to them. And what will come is something that is far better than what we have right now. And Paul's looking forward to that. He says, I don't want to be found naked in that verse. He says, I don't want to be found without a body. He says, that's not the point. I'm going to have my body in all of eternity. And so will you. And we will be with Jesus. Now, Paul deeply looks forward to being with Jesus. But I want you to 
to, to see in 2 Corinthians 5, 6, he says, now we're confident and we know that as long as we're at home in the body, we're away from the Lord. Here's Paul's preoccupation. He says, I'm going to be going home one day. You ever had that long journey away from home or you're away with work and, and, and you just get on that plane or that train and you're heading back to Edinburgh and you just sit back in your seat and you think, I'm going home. Isn't it a good feeling? Well, that's how Paul feels about his death. I'm going home. I'm not going somewhere else. I'm going to the place I belong. And he looks forward to seeing God, not only his saviour, as, but as his judge. And I think that's fascinating. If somebody said to me, Dan, do you fancy standing before God and being judged? I'd be saying, well, I'd I'd be happier just to live in this life a few more years, perhaps, and put off that day a little bit longer. But I want you to see that Paul looked forward to that day. Verse 8 of chapter 4, there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have longed for his coming. There's a judgment that Paul is looking forward to. And as a mature Christian, this is a judgment that God wants you to look forward to as well. That God is the judge, but that day is going to be quite a glorious day. And let's just unpack that for a few moments more. Now, for for everybody, the Bible says that God will judge the world. In Hebrews 9.17, it says, It is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. Jesus is going to judge the world. And it's important that we understand that. I think we, we understand God to be the God of love. If there's one thought that comes to mind when you think of God, the, the word is love. That's what uh, 1 John says to us. But for God to be love, he has righteousness and he's a good judge. And when he comes back, he's not just going to be giving out ice creams for everyone. Beware of any teaching that says God is like that, because that's not what the Bible teaches. All human beings will stand before a perfect and holy God and give an account. Donald Trump will be there. Theresa May will be there. Nicholas Sturgeon will be there. Bill Gates will be there. Everybody will be there, from the greatest to the youngest to the richest to the poorest. We will all stand before God. And there will be a judgment based on God's requirements to love him fully and to love our neighbour as ourself. And that day will be a day of reckoning for how we did on that point. And there will be a judgment based on the responsiveness to the knowledge of God that he's given through his beautiful creation, through the niggles of our conscience and through the gospel that's been communicated to us. But do you know what? For the Christian, we approach this judgment entirely differently to that. Because for the Christian, we recognize that when Jesus died on a cross 2,000 years ago, he took all of, the, all of that future judgment then. He died on a cross, taking the judgment that we deserve so that we can go into an eternity with God and face God with confidence The Apostle Paul put it this way in Romans 8. He said, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. A legal word saying, God is not going to send you down if you believe in Jesus. There's no condemnation for those who are in him. There's no separation from his love. But... 
Paul says there is still a judgment of kinds for Christians. 2 Corinthians 5 says we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each of us may receive what is due to us for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. 1 Corinthians 3 adds a little bit more detail. It says each one should build with care for no one can lay any foundation other than one already laid, which is Jesus Christ. It says how that foundation can be built on by positive things or negative things. But it says it will be revealed with fire, and fire will test the quality of each person's work. And if what has been built survives, the builder will receive a reward. If it is burned up, the builder will suffer loss, but yet will be saved, even though only as one escaping through the flames. What's it saying? It's saying this, that as Christians, we'll appear before God one day, but it will be something akin to a reward ceremony. And there'll be a moment when all of us will have some baggage with us where Jesus will say, you know what, you shouldn't have put your trust in some of that stuff you did because none of us are perfect Christians here. There's things that we've, we've kind of perhaps given too much, cre- much credence to. And, and Jesus said, you know what, let's just take that off you. That's going to be burnt up right here. But what about this promise that he's going to reward us He's going to celebrate every good deed that you've done in Christ. Every good thing. He's going to bring it out for angels and humanity to see. And he says, look what they did. Look at this act of kindness. Things that you have totally forgotten about. People that you helped. People that you served. People that you led closer to Christ. Kindnesses that you showed. People in need that you helped. Churches that you helped establish and get planted. Jesus is going to bring it out. And he said, well done, good and faithful servant. There'll be a crown in store that Paul is looking forward to. I remember uh, one of the most moving experiences I had in the last year was uh, when I was on sabbatical, I went to India and I visited a a Christian school. Uh, It was a school run by Christians, not, not for Christians. And it was a school, they'd set it up in a slum area many years ago, and now it educates 500 pupils between primary age and secondary school uh, ages. And these kids are taken from the slums surrounding the school. They're some of the poorest kids in India. Yet their mission is that they give them dignity, they give them an education, and they give them a hope and a future through education. And uh, when we went to visit this school, the head teacher came out and smiled, and she said to me, she said, she said, uh, I said, so great you're here. It's prize-giving today. And my heart sank. <laughs> I don't know if you've ever been to a prize-giving ceremony at school. Aren't they the worst thing ever? <laughs> everybody stands applauding for hours for the guy that everybody knows is really good at French or the person who's really good at maths or the girl who's really good at... And everybody knows they are. It's kind of a done deal, isn't it? And everybody, the trouble is for prize giving is most of us just think, well, it's not for me. It doesn't involve me other than applauding other people. Now, this ceremony I went to was different than any other I'd been to for this reason. These kids had had troubled backgrounds. They had nothing that their parents could provide for them. So their teachers had basically spent their year observing them. And they'd made up a whole load of categories for giving prizes that would never feature in a normal prize giving. There was one for attendance. You got a prize for turning up. 
There was one for remembering your books. There was one for making the most effort. There was one for making the most progress. There was one for the most tidy appearance. There was one for overcoming challenges. There was hundreds and hundreds of categories. Every child present received a reward. Everyone was honored. Everyone received a prize for, for, the, for the, the progress they'd made. But here's the thing. Most of that was unseen by most people, other than their teachers who'd made a note. For this reward day that's coming for you, there's one who's taken note of everything. And there's one who will reward you on that day. And other people will be looking around saying, really, I never knew that. There'll be no jealousy in heaven. There'll be no jealousy. People looking around saying, I can't believe they got that and I didn't get that. We'll be joyfully celebrating with one another. Prizes in heaven for everything God notices because he's a generous God and he is looking forward to rewarding you on that day. And I want to ask you, are you living for that day? The Bible only really talks about two days of consequence as far as you go. One is this day. And one is that day. And therefore, we need to live this day in the light of that day. Let me ask you today, you're living in the light of that day. A day when Jesus will judge the living and the dead. And let me ask you what you're doing about it this day. Because if we have a firm fix on that day, then it helps us to live for him in this day. But you know, the biggest reward we will get on that day is Jesus himself. To be with him. To know him. To love him. To be embraced by him. And that is available to anyone who puts their trust in him. Let me tell you one final story. There was a thief 2,000 years ago. And he got caught stealing. And he got condemned by a Roman law court. And he was sentenced to crucifixion. And the Bible tells his story because he ended up crucified on a cross next to Jesus along with another thief who died with him that day. And the Bible says that those two thieves, they didn't know Jesus before that occasion. And it says even in death, even after a life of stealing and cheating people, even in their moments of death, they were shouting obscenities at people. They were looking at Jesus and shouting obscenities at him. One of them shouted at Jesus, whose name means saviour. They said, well, why don't you save yourself and save us? But then one of them just stopped talking for a moment. And he told the other one to shut up. And he said, you know what? We're getting what we deserve here. He had a moment of realisation that he wasn't as good as he thought he was. It's a powerful moment when a human being comes to that place. Then he noticed something about Jesus, that while they were cursing and yelling at people, Jesus was accepting what was happening to him. He was speaking words of love from the cross. You can often tell what people are like when they're under the most pressure that you ever see them. Jesus emanated love in his greatest moments of pressure. And this thief looked at himself and he saw he wasn't as good as what he thought he was. And he looked at Jesus and he said, you know, this person's never done anything wrong. What an observation to make about somebody in your dying moment. I could see that they're innocent of whatever crime is they've been 
told that they've committed. And then this thief looks at the sign above Jesus' head and it says, the king of the Jews. And he begins to think to himself, well, maybe he is. Maybe that's not just a sign. Maybe this man dying on a cross next to me is a king. And maybe he has a call on my life because maybe I'm one of his subjects. And so he looks at Jesus and he looks into the eyes that surely showed him the most love he'd ever experienced. And he uttered these words, Jesus, would you remember me when you come into your kingdom? Jesus, Savior, King of a kingdom. He made a big ask. The man on the other cross said, save us now. Do something now. Sort it out now. This thief, he looked at Jesus and he said, Well, if you're a king, you're clearly in charge of this situation. Jesus, would you remember me in your future kingdom? Now, how did Jesus respond to that thief? I love Jesus' response. What would your response have been? You've left it a bit late, haven't you? I hate it when these people come through at the last minute and ask for a favor, when clearly they had no intention of doing it all the years of their life so far. Is that what Jesus says to him? No. He says, today you will be with me in paradise. This man who'd lived his life away from God, hurting other people, not being a good neighbor, not loving God, ends up with a promise from Jesus that he will be with him in paradise just moments later. Let's fast forward the clock. So the thief dies. He gives his final breath. And... He comes to and he finds himself in heaven. He finds him. He's a thief and he's found himself in heaven. And he's looking around and everything's made of gold. It's a thief's dream. <laughs> he, he picks up some of the gravel off the road. He thinks, I'll put that in my pocket. Use that for later. And then a voice from behind him says, and hello, who are you? And he turns around. He says, oh, I'm nobody. I'm not doing anything. And uh, he says, well, who are you? He says, and, and it's Daniel. He's talking to Daniel. And Daniel says, well, I, I'm Daniel. And uh, the guy says, well, tell us about yourself. He said, well, Daniel says, uh, he says well, I, I, you know, I, I faced up against the kings of Babylon, and I was faithful to God all the days of my life. I never let God down. I even nearly got eaten by lions because I was so faithful to God. And he says to the thief, so how did you get here? And he says, well, uh, he says, well I, I met this guy. Uh, he was on a cross next to me. I think his name was Jesus. Jesus, I think that was his. That, that's him right there, the guy on the white horse just going across the back of the room. He says, I met Jesus. There's thieves who are going around in heaven because... Jesus, because they made a big ask of Jesus, and Jesus said, I can forgive your sin. There's a reward available for you in heaven, of going to heaven, of knowing Jesus, of knowing him as your king and your savior, not based on goodness that you've done, but based on what he's done for you. 
And I want to ask you today, if you've made that big ask of Jesus, if you're a Christian here today, I want to ask you the question, are you living for him? Are you living in the light of that day which is to come, when Jesus will reward you for all that you've done in his name? But that's not the basis of your salvation. The basis is Jesus. And if you're not a Christian here today or you're new to this and think, well, maybe it's just about coming to church. Maybe it's just about helping a few people. It's not about that. It's about a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. It's about putting your trust in what he's done. There was no other good enough to pay the price of sin other than Jesus. And he paid your price so that you could be with him forever. Forever.